Having a discourse where we only say bad things about one group and only good things about the other does not serve any positive function. And it really is hurtful, I think, to everyone in society. The problem is, if I say something that's positive about white people, large sections of the culture, maybe the large majority, are going to actually literally perceive that statement, no matter what it is, to be false, racist, and immoral. So people have really internalized splitting at a deep level. It shapes their reasoning, it shapes their morality, their identities, what they can feel and not feel, and everything about their worldview, how they perceive events. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Andrew Hartz, PhD. He's a clinical psychologist in New York City, as well as a supervisor and a professor of clinical psychology at Long Island University in Brooklyn. Uh, he operates a private practice and has written for The Federalist, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Real Clear Education, and Heterodox Academy, as well as recently appearing on the podcast, You Can't Have It Both Ways. So excited to dive in to psychology with Andrew today. Uh, we've had a couple of private chats with lots of interesting stuff to talk about, and uh, we have some shared observations and concerns about some things related to the field of psychology as they pertain to the broader culture. So I'm excited to see where our conversation to, uh, today goes. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. So I gave a brief introduction, but can you tell our audience a little bit more about you, your background, and what it is that you do? So I'm a psychologist in private practice in New York City, and I'm also um, a professor in my old PhD program in Brooklyn. Um, and I work with adults and children. I have a integrative approach. I use lots of different um, CBT, DBT, ACT therapy approaches, and but I, most of my training is psychodynamic. I did training. I'll say this. I did some training at uh, the White Institute in New York, which was Eric Fromm and Harry Steck Sullivan's old institute and at Columbia Medical Center. And um, yeah, so um, mostly psychoanalytic. So I know we've discussed some shared concerns about where the field of psychology is going, where counseling is going, and how our culture at large is relating to concepts from psychology. Um, let's just start there. What are some of the things that you've been wanting to speak out about lately? Well, the most recent thing that I wrote about was an issue for um, the need for non-woke 
therapy options for people that um, on the one hand, you have a lot of people who are increasingly self-censoring, isolated, ostracized, maybe even antagonized for their political beliefs. Um, and at the other hand, you have a mental health profession that's increasingly ideological itself. So at the exact time when you have this growing population of people who've been antagonized for their political beliefs, they're, they can't assume that their therapist is going to be able to get it and help them. And in fact, the therapist might even reject them for their, the same way they were rejected in, at their job or in school. Um, I gave some examples in the article. Um, I'll say um, one was that I was at a clinic and a patient had a female you know, woman of color therapist and the patient said um, that he thought um, uh, he didn't get a fellowship because of affirmative action and that was upsetting to him and this was discussed in the clinic and the clinic-wide consensus was that the patient had to be told that they were racist and that if they didn't agree to change they'd be asked he'd be asked to leave therapy um, but I've seen more and more of that. Um, I'll give one example that wasn't in the article real quick. Um, when I was at one place where I did my training, um, there was a meeting with all the psychologists, maybe about a dozen or a couple, a dozen or two. Um, and we, the issue of race came up, an immigrant woman of color, shared that she had a white male patient that she saw who she hated, not because of anything he did, but simply because of his race and his gender. And the response of the room was, we totally understand why you would feel that way. That makes total sense. And you're so heroic and brave for sharing that. And I was the only white male in the room. I didn't say anything. And then you know, the next week the same thing came up and people were praising this person for expressing her hatred of her white male patient who she continued to see. And I said, you know, what about me? I'm the only white male in the room. Do people hate me? Do they think I deserve to be hated? I spoke up and as soon as I spoke up, I started getting problems <laughs> and, you know, Booking a room suddenly became harder. There were new paperwork issues. People that wanted to hang out with me before didn't anymore. And most of it was indirect, um, but it just made everything harder. I don't regret saying what I said, you know, but there was a lot of costs to it. And I realized, you know, I felt bad for this patient whose therapist hated him for his race and that he wasn't even told or allowed to switch. Um, and I was thinking about all the people in the country who've had experiences like mine, who are antagonized at work, lose friends, and thinking, where do they go for help? The mental health field is not necessarily the place they can go. They need help. They need support. When I was going through that, you know, it would have been really wonderful to have somebody that I could call, get advice about, get support. You no, know, um, 
and there's no one to call, you know? And so I, I think putting it all together, there's this enormous gap in our field. Lots of patients really need help around these issues and no one's providing it. Um, and uh, we need to create it. I've seen what you're talking about. Um, and I had a, a number of incidents similar to those leading up to the time that I, around the same period of time, joined Twitter, started a blog, uh, decided to start a podcast, all of that kind of stuff. And I was seeing this before I joined Twitter. I was in a couple of Facebook groups for therapists. And one of these was a very well-known, very large Facebook group. And I witnessed this takeover of the group by a handful of activists who seemed to feel that it was their job to police anything and everything that took place in that group for anything that could be construed as racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, or any form of bigotry, and to school and educate people. And, and things just became increasingly radicalized with no insight that, that I would think we would bring about, you know, nuance, complexity, splitting, which you've talked about, the drama triangle, um, uh, you know, groupthink, all, all of these things that you would think as, as mental health professionals trained in psychology that, that we'd be able to bring some degree of insight into our own behavior and the group dynamics that were taking place there. But um, it was very disconcerting to see this. And I, I wrote a tweet thread that went kind of viral about one of the more extreme examples I saw of this. I had posted an innocent question asking what people thought of uh, just how unprofessional was it to arrive to a session with wet hair? <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I am a female with long straight hair, in case you haven't noticed. And uh, sometimes I'm not all that great at time management. And sometimes I, you know, I'm rushing, I'm, I'm running late. I have to think about like, do I let my hair be too greasy and not wash it today? Or do I wash it and not have time to dry it, you know? And, um, and my question about, is it unprofessional to have wet hair led to, um, of course, the conclusion that the question was a white supremacist question, um, because, <laughs> because it lacked sensitivity to the unique hairstyling needs of people with different types of hair than mine. And I got schooled on this to, to no end. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's, it's kind of an extreme example. Um, and, you know, you and I have, have talked a little bit privately about um, the types of behaviors that are characteristic of personality disorders and how those behaviors are flourishing in our culture. And this reminds me of what narcissistic emotional abuse looks like, right? You, you, you do something mm -hmm. completely innocent and then there's, there's the, this, this outrage, this how dare you, don't you know how evil you are for asking an innocent question. So I've, I've seen that in the field. Um, and another thing I saw shortly before kind of entering this chapter of my life where I decided to enter the public sphere was um, I had actually sought counseling from someone who seemed quite qualified. Um, actually, I, I wanted to meet with her to find out whether she might be a fit for counseling or whether I might decide to consult with her as a, a supervisor. I was, you know, this is 
uh, after getting my license, but I figured, you know, it's nice to have someone to consult with on occasion. Um, and I specifically sought this person out. Um, one of the reasons I sought her out was because she was bicultural and I actually related to that um, because I was working through some issues of my own identity that I was starting to think of as bicultural in nature. And um, there were there were a lot of other things on her website that made her seem, you know, quite qualified. She she was PhD level or PsyD. She was um, a teacher and supervisor, and she seemed quite competent. I'd reached out to her, um, saying, "Hey, could could we have a brief consultation? I want to see if you know you might be an appropriate fit for either a supervisor or a therapist for me." And um, I guess somehow she had registered that in her mind only as that I was considering supervision and not therapy, um, and she which she would have been free, of course, to set the boundaries of, no, I will only consider you for one or the other. Let's talk with that in mind. I would have respected that. Um, but she registered it that way. And then in our meeting, um, she jumped to a conclusion about why I would seek out a bicultural therapist. The conclusion she jumped to, uh, or a bicultural supervisor, the conclusion she jumped to was that I was carrying some kind of white guilt and white fragility and that I was seeking to be educated by a bicultural person who I am put at, had put on a pedestal and that her first order of business was to correct my white fragility in my way of thinking about her. All of this she jumped to without right. asking me, what is it about having a bicultural person in your counseling sphere that you think you would benefit from? Right. And, and the truth of that being, I'm struggling to integrate my own cultural identity because I walk in many worlds. Right. And uh, my background right. actually involves um, uh, racially motivated abuse. I, I have been a victim of racially motivated abuse. And of course, that doesn't fit the narrative. Right. It, it, according to these narratives, if you're white, you it's impossible for you to have been a victim of race based abuse. Um so I had actually wanted help kind of healing from that and integrating my uh, different cultural influences that have made up who I am. Uh, so that was one of those alarming experiences. And then I've, I've seen that in my own patients, um, you know, so some of the things they've shared. Um, and I've seen it by branching outside of my clinical work to join the broader community of people dialoguing online. And my eyes have really been opened to how many people there are who have a negative, distrustful view of us as therapists and who therefore don't feel like they can seek the kind of help that we're ideally qualified to provide. Um, one of my, you know, the some of the populations I'm most passionate about extending an olive branch to are people who have been harmed by uh, gender medicine. I call them victims of gender medicine. So that includes parents of youth with rapid onset gender dysphoria, detransitioners and desisters, all of whom have either had directly negative and scarring experiences of trying to seek counseling or who've heard enough stories of other people's experiences that they're afraid to try it out. Here in Oregon, we have uh, more of a need for therapy than we can supply. And so I'm imagining that many of my colleagues here, their practices are full with people for whom their virtue signaling is a good marketing strategy. And so if they're not explicitly 
deliberately looking outside of the people who are coming to them who do have a positive view of what therapy is, then they're not seeing this perspective. So I, I hope that our conversation will reach some of those therapists who maybe haven't thought about this before, haven't thought about how um, signaling what they call quote-unquote inclusivity doesn't always have the effect of making everybody feel like this is truly an inclusive place for them. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think all your examples, I mean, they highlight that there are, you know, non-PC issues (laughs) that a lot of people are struggling with, you know, and would like, I think, could benefit from a place where they're able to talk freely and openly about at the same time that the mental health field is so increasingly narrow um, and, and I think more dogmatic about how they think all these should, should play out. Yeah, if, you're, if you say that you're LGBT um, friendly as a, as a therapist, that could, I think this is kind of what you're saying, right? That, that could signal to people that if they're concerned about the detransitioning experience, this is a therapist who won't get it. If they say that they're like inclusive of racial minorities or in favor of diversity or something like that, that may signal to some people, depending on how it's done, perhaps, that this is not somebody who would I could talk about my experience of anti-white aggression um, that I've been through with because they're going to come with it from a different perspective. Um, so I think... Um, even just saying that you're strongly against racism, which, you know, it's f- factually a good thing <laughs> to be, but it codes now as, an, as a signifier of a particular ideology. And people who don't share that might feel like, okay, now I can't talk about some of my concerns with what's dubbed anti-racism today. Um so I think that there need to be ways that people, I, I do think that there's a fairly large population of people who are concerned about this and would like to get help. And maybe they've given up. Maybe they can't imagine that resources like this would exist. Maybe they don't realize that they could get help around these things. Um, but they don't know where to go or they try to just, they go into regular therapy and or therapy with just a regular somebody they find online and they decided, well, I'm just going to not talk about these really important issues in my life. I'll just avoid them or lie about them or something like that. And I think plenty of people do that too. Um, That's really going to affect your treatment (laughs) to have things that you feel really strongly about that you assume your therapist won't be able to get. So you're going to self-censor about them. I mean, that's going to shape, I think that is a real impediment to good treatment um, yeah, but, uh, I think there's, a. I mean, I don't know how people, I don't know how people do it. They're at work or they're at school and they don't agree with an ideology that's put aggressively down their throat every day and they have nowhere to go and no supports. And I don't know how they do it. And people aren't going to be able to speak up or get organized or develop develop alternatives or improve things if they can't connect and get support so that they can process maybe some of the frustration, some of the stresses related to it, the anxieties related to it, and figure out ways to constructively 
um, take steps that they feel are right for them around these issues. I feel like there used to be an ethos in our field where it was understood that we have a professional responsibility to put some boundaries around our own worldview, um, you know, our own religion, culture, political beliefs, uh, that we have a responsibility to be able to serve a diverse community and to be aware of how our own biases can um, affect how we perceive and are able to treat our patients in the context of their lives, their values, and their worldviews. And um, I feel like this concept has been lost and it's also been distorted and twisted to mean its opposite. So, you know, I use the term bias in its classic sense. Um, And yet what I see a lot of in the field is kind of this um, progressive interpretation of the word bias, right? Where there is one direction in which a person can have bias. A person can have bias that is uh, white against non-white racism, straight against gay discrimination, cis against trans discrimination. Uh, you know, it, there's there's one direction in which discrimination goes and it fits with the intersectional model of who is deemed privileged and who is deemed oppressed. And so then clinicians have kind of distorted their responsibility into this endless self-scrutiny of I have to cleanse my mind obsessively of my so-called bias. But it's always in one direction, which itself is a bias. If if you're looking through a filter that sees the world in those terms, then what are you not seeing? What are you missing out on? Um, and so now people are openly biased and refusing to questions their question those biases and and how they affect ethical treatment and it's just shocking to me to know that uh, any therapist would be rewarded for saying that she hates a patient now it's one thing to say it's really insightful of you and brave of you to say something uncomfortable that you could be judged for but then you don't proceed to say that that's an okay way to be, right? You say, this is right. one of those issues that we stop and deal with in supervision. And we have to evaluate, first of all, are you are you fit to continue treating this patient? Because the, right. the only way you're going to be fit to continue treating this patient is if you can address your countertransference through supervision, through whatever you need to do to the point where you do not harbor hatred towards your patient. That's an obstacle. So the fact that it right. just stops there of how how brave of you to say this and now there's no problem here. Yes. It's horrifying. Well, and there's, I think, you know, and I, I do think that the issue of maybe in particular anti-white hate or anti-male hatred, maybe but especially anti-white hatred is something that, I, it's not that rare of an experience. I mean, and and bullying and antagonism and the full spectrum of things, even outright violence, it's not that it's not that rare that there can't be services around it. I think there's part of it is there are cultural norms among white people not to talk about it. 
um, and not to deal with it. If you're at a school where minority kids are bullying a white kid with racially charged bullying, the adults are often unsure or hesitant to address it. They don't know what they're worried about how to, you know, so they, they don't or, you know, and parents of those kids often don't understand the experience, don't know how to support them. Um, and then if they tell their friends or they tell other people, maybe later in life, if this happened to them, you know, are they going to say, well, but you're privileged and they're victims. It's like, you know, and so the experience of invalidation is just so, so common. And it's something that's considered unacceptable to talk about, which I think makes the trauma potentially around it all that much worse. Um, and then you go into therapy and your therapist says, well, but you're privileged or they're thinking you can tell <laughs> or something that that's what's going on is like they don't actually recognize what it's like to have chronic or systematic race hatred directed at you that's invalidated and not addressed and that you're almost seen as deserving it or it not being a big deal by everyone in your life. And then you hear that from your therapist. And it's like, I, so I think that's in particular a big one. And, and, you know, think about it. I mean, you have that history and then you go to work and you have to go to white fragility training and the trainings that you're going to for your job or at college mirror the types of insults that you endured from the bullies. It's that you're white fragile or like white stupid whatever it is it's like you know stupid white boy or whatever it is that you got insulted with but i i you know those are the types of things that people get deal with and obviously i don't agree with that language but the um um but then then you're you're getting it again in a required social justice class in college where you have to write a paper about how you're fragile to pass the class and basically indicate that you agree to an extent with the things that your bullies insulted you for and and very hard to find supports around this for this population where do they go i mean i don't have a list of providers that i could find with people who i feel like i could trust to treat these issues individual or group or anything there's no specializations i think there's not a lot of research it's insane but i mean just as one example of the type of thing these huge totally unserved populations there are many layers of harm and ripple effects to reinforcing these narratives about racism and other problems. You know, you talk about a child being bullied. So that was my experience. So I was that kid, right? I was that white kid who grew up in a predominantly black community, um, with a little bit of Hispanic community nearby. And um, in my little world, uh, black was the majority. Black was cool. Black was popular. Um, I wanted to be black because you 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 want to fit in as a kid, right? And um, I was seven when the LA riots happened in '92, following the Ronnie King situation, and um, that was my neighborhood that that went down in. 
And wow. following those riots, I mean, I, I witnessed the riots. There were ashes falling into my patio from all the fires. I witnessed things exploding. I witnessed the looting. My school was shut down for three days. And after that, um, the few remaining other white families in the neighborhood left. Um, and the racial tension in the neighborhood was higher. And I was a kid. I was seven, and then I was eight, and then I was nine. And think about what the other kids at that age are being told by their parents about race relations and how a seven, eight, nine, ten year old brain processes that information, right? It's literally black and white thinking is all they're capable of, right? So it's like, oh, these riots right. are happening because racism because white people are bad. White people are out to get us. White people were slave owners. Now they're they're killing us in the streets. That's the narrative. So then how right. does that narrative get interpreted and manifested by a child? There's a white girl. We got to get her. Right? Yeah. So then at seven, I'm being blamed for the entire history of race relations in America. Right? Like right. I'm scapegoated when I'm at an age when I'm so naive that I just want the life I'm seeing on Family Matters. And I, you know, I have a crush on Will Smith because he's a fresh prince. Like, and I right, right, am right. like singing TLC songs, right? Like that was my life as a kid. I just wanted to play with all the other kids. And I'm the scapegoat for all of this history. So right. the this is one of the reasons I'm so concerned with the narratives that we see now. What to speak of, what happens when someone with an experience like that goes to therapy, right? But but when we're teaching children these particular narratives, how do their brains make sense of that? How does that get acted out? Because there's not a child in this world that deserves to be threatened, harassed, taunted, name-called, and assaulted as I was for nine years <laughs> um, right. because of the color of their skin. There's not a child in this world that is responsible either for the history of slavery or for, for any of these problems. And so you just see the pendulum swing. You just see the black and white rigid mind carrying out these problems over and over, right? But according to woke therapists, my experience did not exist. Right. That wasn't racism or right. or I deserved it. Yikes. I, I think it's, there are probably many people having those experiences. I'm I'm it's I'm positive. I mean, yeah, and you know, you'll I'll I'll be talking to somebody who I think of as like a liberal person, nothing at all, and I'll mention and they'll they'll tell a story. You know, and it's um it's it there really is a culture of silence around this stuff. And and I think a lot of people they bury it or they have a little online community or you know, or they're totally isolated or they just feel hopeless, they don't have any support. I mean, I think that is um very common. And that's why it's so important to provide help and support for this population. So I, I think a lot of people have experiences like yours, a lot more people than we know about and they run the gamut from chronic you know quite aggressive bullying it can involve you know physical attacks um other really shameful shaming humiliating ostracizing types of things that are can be incredibly painful 
And um, some of it comes as, as a kid. Some of it can be in the community, in your neighborhood, or from a, uh, or it can happen at work. It can happen anywhere. And um, I think a lot more people have these experiences, but they seem to not speak out about it. There aren't supports for them. Um, there aren't ways to network. Um, and so I think a lot of people uh, bury it, repress it, uh, you know, ignore it, or they have a little online community or something like that. But I, it's, it's really stunning to me uh, how often people describe really horrific experiences that then they don't speak about, don't organize about, don't address. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. You and I both have a foundation in relational psychodynamic therapy, which places emphasis on understanding what's happening in the room between the client and therapist through the transference and counter-transference and how a patient might be unconsciously reenacting familiar relational patterns. And we're trained in methods of being able to explore that and utilize what's coming up in the here and now in therapy to address some of those kind of deep relational patterns that have been established for for the person. And and I was saying before we recorded that I um I was trying to be welcoming and encouraging when one of my patients finds the insight and the courage to say something to me like, I was worried that you were going to be disappointed in me. Because that's relational mm. psychodynamic therapy. That's uh-huh. rupture and repair, right? Um 
And I, I think a lot of more modern therapists don't necessarily go that route with their education or they don't have that relational foundation. And that doesn't mean that they can't be a perfectly good therapist or can't be aware of what's happening in real time in the room. But um, do you think that some of these patients who are um, afraid or hesitant to say something about their own personal traumas or anxieties or struggles that don't fit the woke narratives, do you think that they ever leave breadcrumbs or test the therapist or, you know, what are some ways that that shows up where they're trying to figure out, is this a place where I'm going to be judged or where I'm going to be accepted and understood? Yeah. Well, let me say, I think there's two two things. The first is, I think a lot of times, a lot of people who have these experiences, it almost like doesn't seem to even occur to them that it would be possible that there would be places where they could get support and process what they're feeling so that it's not so painful to them and find ways to speak out about it assertively, build social connections where they're not alone with it and can can do things constructively about these issues. I think a lot of people, it hasn't even occurred to them that such resources could potentially exist. There is a little bit of a feedback loop where Patients aren't looking for these services. Therapists aren't advertising that they offer these services. So patients don't look, so therapists don't offer. And um, I would, I think we should try to get out of that loop. And I think that probably is going to come from the therapist end of, I know there are people out there. We're here to talk. We need to build networks where we can offer these services and encourage patients who've had these experiences. Anybody who's had these experiences, like, to come that, that you don't have to be alone with it and you can find your voice um, to address this in a way that feels right to you. Um, so I think that that's a central issue. Um, my guess is, um, yeah, I think people test the waters and there's a little, there are little signs and um, that people do and it's like, uh, you know, somebody, ha- I mean, somebody has uh, an American flag or something like that. It's an indication of something sometimes that means something to them. Um, maybe, uh, or maybe they, they push here or there. Um, but it's, it's, if you've had a chronic experience of being invalidated for your experience, it's going to be hard to speak up about it. And there, Therapists are hesitant to make the leap. Is this what you're talking about? Because there's an answer that it's no. <laughs> um, and so I think there's hesitancy on both sides to address it, which um, which is all the more reason just to build it into to the, the services. That if you feel frustrated at your school or at your college or at your job around these issues or in your community, you're trying to figure out how to build social network or meet partners or speak up around this, just to have, it'd be great if there was a website they could go to, a number they can call where they could find somebody who could do some sort of consultation or longer-term therapy around this. Um, and that would be a good resource for people who know that their views are unorthodox. Um, and, right. you know, here in Portland, Oregon, with the kind of... Um, clientele that I'm accustomed to working with, you know, many of them 
are very loyal to progressive viewpoints and narratives. Um, and I have what I think are, you know, my best approximation at appropriate professional boundaries with remembering what my job is, which is to work with a client in the context of their worldview, not mine. So I'm not using therapy to, you know, push right. my anti-woke views onto people, but I do see how their views play out for them and how they're interrelated with their mental health. An example that comes to mind is someone who was a victim of a crime, but um, did not engage the police because of narratives about police and black people, right? There's this mm. I'm going to be doing harm to Black people if I call the police when I'm a victim of a crime. There are also times I see people who are, you know, putting up with a lot of mistreatment in a relationship or they're dealing with a very emotionally immature person, but they feel afraid to say anything unsavory about that person because that person is trans or because they're a person of color or, you know, there's something about this person where they belong to this protected category. And so I'm obligated right. to put up with this behavior and try to interpret it in the best way possible, even though it's hurting me. So I, I see those kinds of things come up. I also see how um, self-hatred consumes a lot of people's time and energy or, you know, guilt and feeling the need to endlessly self-examine for all the forms of bias they've decided they're guilty of. And right. I see how that takes away valuable life force from other things that could be more meaningful to them. And I don't see relationships getting closer. That's that's the sad and ironic thing. I actually feel like we've gotten further apart because we're all walking on eggshells. And right. I, I wonder if you see that too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and I think, like, maybe in particular, like, I mean, I, I think there is a paradigm of young white women who have an enormous amount of racial guilt that they've extremely internalized. And, um, and it can lead them to like, as you say, have relationships, romantic relationships that are even abusive and really unhealthy that they feel that they have to endure. And it can be totally traumatizing for them. And they're not thinking about what do I want in a partner? What do I find fulfilling? And I mean, um, so I think there's so many iterations of it. Um, it's hard. It's harder to think about somebody who really feels strongly attached to these ideologies and you're concerned that they might be contributing to symptoms, um, that's trickier. That's very tricky to address in therapy. And maybe, maybe those need to be addressed more just in a, outside of therapy, honestly, like, as like, I think if we talk about them outside of the context, um, Maybe people can become more aware that these things do happen. Um, I, I mean, I think there are men who have intense self-hatred for their gender, and maybe that leads to, again, not 
speaking about their needs in relationships, maybe sexual dysfunctions, um, things like that. And but a lot of them have fully internalized it. And I mean, you can even imagine a couple where both people in the couple are unsatisfied with the dynamic that they feel ideologically committed to. And they can't speak up. And what do you do as the couple's therapist? Do you, do you raise this as an issue? Um, I think those are just incredibly difficult clinical decisions to make. Yeah, and when you think about the implications of or all the ways it could manifest, a, a, a male who has self-hatred because of um, his beliefs about, let's say, toxic masculinity, right? Like, what's going to play out in the relationship with the therapist if the therapist is female, which many of us are, um, you know, is there going to be some transference there of idealization of, you know, looking up to the the woman as the authority figure who's there to correct or purify him um, or whose approval he needs. And I think if we lack a relational foundation or if we just go with that that narrative and we agree with his narratives about all masculinity being toxic, for instance, then we right. we miss some valuable opportunities there. And then I think all, as well about what you said with couples. Um, you know, I, I've seen in couples where, let's say there's an interracial couple where during times of stress, uh, the person of the racial minority uses the white person's whiteness as a, as a fighting point. You're doing that white person right. thing again, right? And, right? and it's like, if if the therapist is ideologically captured or if we're not allowed to explore that for fear of disrupting someone's worldview, then we're missing a, an enactment of something that I think we're meant to treat at such a, a deeper level, right? Because just because it's about race on the surface, I mean, I, I would prefer to be able to treat that the same way I'd treat any other Right. Step in a dance of a couple, right? Which is like, I'm feeling threatened or dissatisfied or resentful about fill in the blank. And my reaction to that is I'm looking for a way to get my power back. And so here's a here's the nearest rock I can throw at you, which is that you're white and you're doing that white person thing again. Right. right. But but there's this kind of sacredness around race where you can't touch it. You can't explore how that could be an enactment of something else or an attempt to get a need met, but not a good, not a successful attempt, not a healthy way of communicating. It's like, but we can't go there because race is sacred. Well, and I would say, maybe this is a good transition because I would say that the barrier there is that the discourse on race is split and that there are these broad social cultural norms that discourse around identity issues, I think especially race, have to be split. Um, so I'll just, for people who don't know what splitting is, it's a defense mechanism that was popularized by Melanie Klein in the 30s and 40s. Basically, our, it's basically all or nothing framing of individuals, groups, or ideas. And it's very common in mental illness, um, and it's used in a lot of different treatments. Um, for people who know, it's in dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, 
psychoanalytic treatments, motivational interviewing, transference-focused psychotherapy. There are lots. It's widely used in the field. Um, and, And basically the idea is it's hard to tolerate a mix of positive and negative feelings towards the same thing at the same time. It's hard to acknowledge, I have strengths and weaknesses, you have strengths and weaknesses, there's pros and cons, risks and benefits. And so because that's emotionally difficult, it's conceptually difficult, people slide into this all or nothing framing where they look at one side, maybe the advantages, but not the disadvantages. They look at the positive, but not the negative. And in the short term, that reduces anxiety. It makes things feel more stable and coherent and easier. Um, but it involves removing a lot of information. So an example, one example would be with maybe depression. That, that, that somebody who's depressed sees everything about themselves as negative. Everything about the world is negative. Everything about the future is negative. And they can't tolerate feeling, acknowledging the emotions about hopefulness, about their strengths, about things that are going well. It, it says something about our psyche that for people who are depressed in the short term, it's easier to be depressed than to tolerate that mix of there's things that aren't going well, but there are things that are going well. That, that the mix is harder to tolerate than the depression it's pretty striking, but it happens in a lot of disorders. Um, it's most linked to personality disorders, like borderline personality disorder. Um, there are lots of cons- you know, couples can split. They're thinking about moving across the country. One person, one member of the couple, really thinks the move is great. They think staying's bad. The other person thinks moving's bad. Staying's great, and they can only hold half of it, and then they lock horns. So it, this happens over and over again. Um, but I think it's really dominant in discourses around identity issues, especially, especially race. And it's basically evidenced by only saying negative things about one group and only saying positive things about the others. So I could probably, in polite company, talk about white people being racist, ignorant, fragile, privileged, weak even toxic or disgusting, needing to feel shame and pain, be discriminated against, being dismantled, on and on. There's lots of negative things I could say about white people publicly and it would be okay. Could I say anything about white people that's unambiguously positive? I think not. Um, I think that if you look at most media, you won't find a single wholehearted, unambiguous compliment or defense of white people as a group. And you'll find lots of negative. For black people, and I think for other groups, it's the opposite. They're praised and celebrated, often in really grandiose, idealized language, strong, noble, beautiful, righteous, deserving to be proud and voiced and protected and you know, preserved, and their contributions need to be highlighted, and on and on. But can you talk wholeheartedly about negative dynamics in those groups? it's much harder. Um, So you end up with a paradigm where you're only saying negative things about one category, only saying positive things about the other. Anything that deviates from that is rejected as racist. People can't tolerate it. They can't tolerate feeling it or thinking it. And so they reject it. 
And so you're left with what's in effect an all or nothing framing of these groups. Um, the problem with the all or nothing framing of groups, I think there's basically three main problems. One is it's not true. <laughs> the groups are not all good and all bad. Every group has positive, negative dynamics and trends. If you're talking about them in all or nothing terms, you're distorting, you're missing information. It's really not even plausible in my view that races are all or nothing. Um, second, it's really hurtful and really unhealthy. It makes people hate themselves, hate other people. It creates conflict and division, um, mental illness and so forth. It's obviously linked to mental illness and, and other problems. And the third thing is it doesn't, having a discourse where we only say bad things about one group and only good things about the other does not serve any positive function. It does not create justice, truth, love, peace, prosperity, fulfillment, happiness, well-being. There's nothing that's being served by this. And it really is hurtful, I think, to everyone in society. The problem is, if I say something that's positive about white people, large sections of the culture, maybe the large majority, are going to actually literally perceive that statement, no matter what it is to be false, racist, and immoral. And they are literally going to experience any discussion of a problematic dynamic in another group as false, racist, and immoral. So people have really internalized splitting at a deep level. It shapes their reasoning. It shapes their morality, their identities, what they can feel and not feel, and everything about their worldview, how they perceive events. And it's... I think you could go through and think about how this shapes what gets censored and what doesn't get censored, discourses on disparities. You know, often if uh, a non-white group overperforms, let's say, more Asians, Asians are doing better in STEM jobs. You know, why is that? Because they're smart and hardworking, more smart, they're smarter and more hardworking than white people. They're underrepresented in comedy, maybe, or music or something. Why is that? Because of white racism. You look at black people are overrepresented in comedy and music because they're smart and hardworking. They're underrepresented in STEM because white people's racism. So what is in effect happened here is it doesn't, when you're talking about disparities, this as just one example, it doesn't matter which group is higher or lower. The explanation is always the same. It's about the badness of white people and the goodness of the other group. And you can't suggest a causal factor that is not split around disparity debates without being accused of racism. People have internalized this to such a deep level throughout society that it shapes reasoning on a wide range of issues, criminal justice, education, so on. So I think you could just look at issue after issue. I think there are entire academic fields where nothing non-split has been written in decades. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's just such a, but it's in the media and it shapes literature and the arts and all kinds of things in, in less direct ways. But um, so you're talking about this couple where one of the partners, when things are stressed, insults the other one for their race. Well, the, if, the, if it's a black partner insulting a white, if it's the, somebody who's black insulting their partner who's white, the therapist is ambivalent and unsure how to address it. If it's a white partner insulting the black one, they're not going to be ambivalent. 
they're going to understand that that's totally unacceptable and not suitable for a sustainable relationship. So what part of our conflict is how do you do how do you do therapy in a culture where broadly people of all races and all backgrounds have so fully internalized race-based splitting um, if you suggested that uh, you know as a couple if you're going to be an interracial couple you have to like something about european culture <laughs> european american culture like something you have to kind of value that as it can't just be negative um, but sometimes they internalize that view. So I, I think it's, uh, it's a, it's a pervasive problem that shapes issues, not just in mental health, but throughout culture. There are so many places we could go next. I'm just going to pick one. Um, I, I'd wanted to bring up histrionic personality disorder. So this is not an episode on personality disorders, but it is an episode where we talk about unhelpful mental habits and ways of seeing and relating with the world. Um, and I've been expressing a lot lately that I'm concerned that uh, things we used to consider unhealthy that that we used to want to help people heal from uh, are now being promoted as the right way to be, right? So when we talk about splitting, right, it, that is a component of borderline personality disorder. Now, just, a pers just because a person splits doesn't mean they have BPD. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. But, um, but that's part of the pathology, right? And uh, you know, we could go through, and we're not going to, but we could go through all the different traits of some of the most common personality disorders, and we could pick out ways that we see this in the culture at large, on social media, and and ways that we see these types of behaviors being promoted as like the right way to be. So, if our job as clinicians used to be that if we see a personality disorder. We diagnose this and we treat it and we try to help the person find a more integrated, whole, functional way of being in the world and relating to other people and getting their needs met. That that used to be our goal. But what do we do when the whole culture is working against us? Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who are having these kinds of discussions that you and I are having, we talk about this with borderline and we talk about it with narcissistic traits. I think one thing I don't see very much a uh, discussion around is histrionic personality disorder. But if you look at the traits and behaviors of histrionic personality disorder, they are predictably uh, over <laughs> expressed uh, to, to a grand degree in places like TikTok. Um, so, you know, I, I posted something on Twitter about this recently, and one of my followers said, Oh, that's a real thing. There's a name for it. So for those who haven't heard about this, could we talk a little <laughs> bit about histrionics? Sure. Yeah, I, um, it's interesting. I, I'll just say, aside from histrionic, I think probably all the personality disorder, all the personality disorders are going to be escalated in a society where there's a lot of splitting um, based on demographics or any other, other thing, um, that they're all going to go up. Um, you know, uh, a narcissistic split 
is that somebody sees themselves as, you know, always deserving praise, never shame, for example, or always superior, never inferior, or something like that. Um, those are type of narcissistic splits. Um, borderline people tend to flip more, where they see somebody else as perfect and then see them as evil, <laughs> or they see themselves as having it all figured out, and then the next day they're a wreck. So they tend to have this kind of unstable splitting pattern. Um, I think with um, histrionics, uh, histrionic personality disorder, you're seeing more of somebody who um, is really attached to getting attention um, and needing to be seen, whether it's in a good or bad light, sometimes it doesn't matter um, and can't tolerate not being seen. You know, that it's this, um, but, um, yeah, I, but you wanted to talk about something with histrionic personality disorder that was beyond just, just splitting though. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I just think my audience is interested in psychological literacy. Some of them are therapists or therapists in training, but some of them are just, you know, lay people who are curious and, and so I just want to, you know, provide a little bit of psychoeducation about this, um, not so that you can go around pointing your finger and labeling people histrionic the moment you don't like them. Um, that yeah. that would be dramatic and dysfunctional. But um, I, I think we need to know that this exists and and that it has been conceptualized as a pathology, right? So so the person with histrionic yeah. personality disorder is someone who, as you said, needs to be the center of attention at all times, and part of how they go about doing this is through these really superficial displays of exaggerated emotion, as well as attention-seeking mannerisms, style of dress, and so on. And I think if we look at some of the most absurd and concerning things that we see on the internet, you know, the the highly influential people on TikTok, for instance, who are um, you know, out there vying for the attention of a young and impressionable generation, we see these traits. We see that there's a lot of, um, I'm forgetting the word that's commonly used to describe their language, but like language that's simultaneously grandiose and empty, right? Using a lot of big words or, or these um, flourishes on everything as if things are very significant and meaningful, but there's not a lot of substance behind them, right? And then you see yeah, the dramatic yeah. styles of dress and the hair and the makeup, and it's almost as if it's designed to be as eye-catching as possible. And I yeah. am concerned that there are people who genuinely have histrionic personality disorder where, you know, if they were to go to a competent therapist, that would be recognized and who are highly influential, but that part of their influence is kind of making this an appealing behavior pattern for young people to emulate. Do you know what I'm saying? These superficial displays yes, of yes. emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, there's definitely, um, there seem to be large social cultural trends that are kind of like shape, shaping personality dynamics in, in people. And, um, we were talking before the recording a little bit about one of those maybe being, you know, a heightened focus on the external 
and a neglect of internality that might be cultivated by things like social media and TikTok and that there's constant external stimulation, um, less time that people spend being with their inner worlds and feeling and daydreaming or fantasizing or free associating or playing that you kind of get kids who, um, younger kids who have a hard time knowing how to play, um, have a hard time dreaming and fantasizing. And older, you know, maybe younger adults, even older adults who are having a harder time knowing how to free associate, knowing how to talk about what they feel um, in a deeper, reflective, connected way that the space where people are more comfortable is this very superficial, externally focused space that tends to be about your external experience in a very superficial way, um, external stimulation, um, not about internal states, your inner world, your, your depths of feeling that people are kind of less connected to some parts of themselves. Right. I think there's a a connection there. I'm glad you tied it together because I had wanted to talk about the histrionic stuff and you had mentioned the internality versus externality. And I, I appreciate how you just drew that connection. It makes me think of how you know, one of the reasons that histrionics are so good at getting our attention is because with this exaggerated emotion, um, they behave in ways that the rest of us would only behave if something were really significant. Like, hey, hey, I'm trying to get your attention. There's something important going on over here. And, you know, because we have empathy and curiosity and people can spark feelings in us, we we go, oh, really? This must be important. I better pay attention. But what histrionics do is they just do that all the time about everything. And often there's very little that they're actually going off of, right? And so there might be a little bit of feeling there somewhere or like something that happened in their day, but it it only takes a little bit of something. and, And maybe there's only so much that they're actually able to feel before what's the next thing we do with that feeling? Well, we exaggerate it and we externalize it and we make it very colorful and we try to get everyone's attention to the point where, you know, I'm putting on a show here with my feeling. I'm like acting on a stage and and do I actually do I actually like know how I feel and what this feeling means and what it's trying to tell me and or am I just kind of habituated to this pattern. And so I think when we have these uh, influencers behaving like that, then it sends a lot of false signals to the rest of us. A, that there's something actually important and significant happening here that's worthy of this level of emotion, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and therefore that there's, um, you know, there's a crisis or there's some something to learn from and, and that this is how, this is how we express emotion. This is how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and I think a lot gets lost. You know, I, I, I mentioned the other day, like in this article I wrote, um, you probably didn't have a, a chance to see it yet, but I just published an article yesterday 
called uh, Human Rights or Special Privileges. So the backstory behind this article is that I was suspended from Twitter for calling into question the slogan, trans rights or human rights, by unpacking what people mean when they say trans rights, what are the common demands of gender activists, and are those actually things that we consider basic human rights, or are they special privileges? And at one point, I kind of explained, um, you know, how one thing that most of us don't consider a human right is the ability to threaten suicide in order to get what you want and how we normally treat that in psychotherapy. And I talked about the differences between, let's say, the suicidal pattern you'll see with someone with persistent depressive disorder compared to the suicidal pattern you'll see with someone like borderline personality disorder. And how with borderlines, um, you know, like if, if you have a patient with persistent depressive disorder, he might tell you his thoughts of suicide after three years of not telling anyone. And right. in that moment, you, you're you grateful that you've done a good enough job in therapy to make him feel safe to say that. And you really want to signal that it's, you know, it's okay. I welcome you for saying that. Thank you for letting me know. And you, you want to encourage and welcome that, that open expression of emotion. Um, whereas, and, and that's just the classical persistent depressive. I mean, that can coexist with borderline, for instance, but, you know, then if if you look at the classic borderline case, though, it's I want to kill myself this. I want to kill myself that. I want to kill myself every day. It's like it's like a greeting. It becomes just this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. broken record or this way of saying hello or this way of saying hello. I, I, I'd like your attention, please. Can can we talk for a minute? You know, and in those cases, you don't want to always it's, it's not always the right approach to say, oh, my goodness, thank you so much for telling me that must have been so hard for you to say. You know, mm -hmm. you don't always want to take it that seriously if that's become a maladaptive way of trying to get attention if you know the patient well enough to know that there's not actually an imminent threat. Um, right. So I feel like that connects somehow. You know, people with histrionic personality disorder, um, you know, if that coexists with things like borderline, they might use suicide that way, but they sure do use a lot of things that way. Um, as you know, they, they lack that subtlety to be able to enjoy and engage in the normal, the kind of normal human interaction of hello, how are you? And just talking about normal things and enjoying the nuance in them. It's almost like the flavor palette of someone who lives on junk food where they, the taste buds only respond to intensely sweet, salty, fatty foods. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So then what do we do about this young, vulnerable generation that's getting their influence from that. And they're not learning that emotional intelligence of how to feel their feelings or developing that internal taste for um, the, you know, developing the preference to actually be able to manage their emotions. They're, they're instead, they're develop developing a preference for not being able to manage their emotions because they're getting rewarded for it. Yeah. Well, right. It's like cultivated. And then the, the inner world becomes this, uh, dark, scary thing that they don't understand and they can try to numb out and to it, or maybe it, it comes up. But you definitely see a lot more self-image related concerns and anxiety are definitely on trend in mental health. And it, it fits with this idea that the types of personalities that are rewarded on social media, I mean, it's at the same time, it's like, 
what's going to get you lots of clicks or lots of likes? Just like something that's dramatic and superficial and takes 20 seconds. And then what's the gratification of like a click and a like? Like the emotional <laughs> satisfaction really isn't the same as having a friend that you spend an afternoon with or something like that. So things do seem out of balance. And I, I'm, I'm concerned about how kids develop in this culture. Um, they can't really get off social media because they're all their friends are on it. And so if they just stop doing it, they're isolated. And if they do it, then they're pushed into these kind of social dynamics that really cultivate a lot of anxiety and aren't often aren't as nourishing as one would hope relationships to be. So it's very concerning. I, the, the, the thing that's, one thing I'll say, this is kind of a side point, but research takes so long. <laughs> I once read a study that's, it was a study of research about research. And it said the average amount of time from when a study's conceptualized to when it's published is seven years. The average. So how long is it going to be until you have a robust literature about long-term effects of this stuff? 40 years. <laughs> It'll be like, by then it's like, why even do it? It takes so long. It's like, so we kind of, you know, I think it's worth listening to our intuitions a little bit about this stuff because to have robust meta-analyses or longitudinal studies or a really rich debate on these questions, that is going to take a while. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. You had mentioned a couple of other topics we might explore. We'll see what we have time and interest for. Um, you mentioned superego issues in wokeness, reaction formation in wokeness, um, and the potential risks of large-scale social contagion um, related to gender and sexuality issues. Is there any of those that you want to explore at this point? Um. I think reaction formation is really interesting in, in relation to what we were talking about earlier. Maybe not the most recent topic, but long, a little, a couple steps back. Um, for people who don't know what reaction formation is, it's a defense mechanism, and it's basically to avoid feeling something you feel the opposite. I think that's so. The example that I was given in my class on this when I was introduced this is that your your redheaded stepchild okay that you, you you're a step imagine you're a stepdad in a new hey, relationship I have two stepchildren who both have red hair <laughs> okay okay <laughs> well you know the phrase redheaded stepchild yes but yeah I um, funny. I love redheads by the way and I have a little red by the way but um <laughs> the uh um but okay so you, it's like your stepchild and you can't stand this person. And so you hate them, but that's not tolerable. Okay. So you love them 
way too much. And again, this is unconscious. So you think you love them and you don't realize that your love is actually fueled by hatred. But it's going to come out weird. You're going to get them lots of gifts they don't want. You're going to hug them in ways that are uncomfortable for them. You're going to want to take them on trips that they don't want to go on. You're going to be kind of intrusive and at odds. And there's going to be, and you're going to push them away with all your love and things like that. So it's like a hate-fueled love would be an example of a reaction formation. And then you don't realize, you know, that you think you love this person, but you actually hate them and that's fueling it. So this, the, the most famous example of this had to do with gay rights, that there would be some preacher who was really anti-gay. And the features of this would be, you know, it would be a man, he's preoccupied with homosexuality, he sometimes talks about it in a way that indicates like a desirous infatuation. Um, there's a weirdness to it counterproductive arguments. I, I heard an argument against gay marriage that said, well, if we let men marry men, what's next? Men marrying chickens? You know, it was like the argument's so bad, it makes you support gay marriage more. Um, and then they'd find out, you know, down the road, you find out that they're seeing gay prostitutes or something like that. It came out or, you know, that, that that's kind of the cliche. And so what's happening is actually it's not like a ploy they really can't tolerate their homosexual desires so they take the opposite view that they hate it but their anti-gay behavior has this weird tone to it that's weird and it's like driven by this infatuation and desire so that's examples of reaction formation but where i feel you know i'm just hypothesizing this i think that there's a lot of it around race you you see, um, and I think some around gender too. I mean, with with race, I mean, there were riots in 2020. White college students in the black neighborhood burning down the library in the black neighborhood. They care so much about black lives, they're going to burn down the black neighborhood library. They care so much about black lives, they're going to make sure none of them have effective policing and that all the criminals are back on the streets. They talk to black people in a condescending way. They, they say things like math is racist because black people aren't good at it. It's like they sound like hate and they feel like hate and they're counterproductive. They push potential allies away. They hurt the people they express love for. And it just has all the markers of if you really hated black people right now and you couldn't express that you might become woke <laughs> and that would be a reaction formation yep i feel like i've seen a video of one of these activists a white one of course like screaming at the top of their lungs i love black people right right and you know i i look at this and i think do you love them or do you fear them because I know what it's like to get those wires crossed. I, I wouldn't actually go to hatred. I'd go to fear mm. because I think mm. we're living in a fear-based climate and that our ways of talking about race only increase fear. Um, because uh -huh. if you're white, you, you can do no right. And you are right. always at risk of getting your head chopped off no matter how much you're trying to virtue signal. And I just see right. people walking on eggshells 
more and more. It would make sense in that environment. Like if you can't get comfortable enough to have a down to earth relationship with someone where you're both seen for the complexity of your humanity, you can enjoy a sense of humor together. You can poke fun at each other. You're not worried that anything you say is going to send them into a rage. If you can't have that with someone, how can you say that you love them? Um, you know, when I talk about getting your wires crossed, like I, I had Stockholm syndrome basically from being in an abusive relationship where I was, I was put into a situation where I had to appease this person for months on end because of a certain power that they wielded over me, which is also another thing in that latest article that I wrote for anyone who wants to go and read that. Um, and you do get to a point where you're genuinely confused. Do I love this person, hate them, fear right. them? I don't know because I'm so busy doing that fawning behavior where my nervous system is actually in fight or flight mode. I feel unsafe here. But my way of dealing with that is to try to appease. Right. I, I think a lot of people are feeling fear and calling it love. And I wonder if it's maybe not even too different from like – the classic Catholic fear of God, mm. because there is this kind of absolute like authority figure. There's this idealized split. Yeah, the approval it's, it's, of blackness <laughs> is like what you're right, cowering right. and fear begging for. Like, <laughs> right, right. And why is that? Yes, um, yeah. Th that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, the repressing fear. Um, in uh, and and making that love, or you know, I it it's I would say you know my advice from a therapist to therapist here is look at the body language, look at the look at the nonverbals, look at the vo tone of voice. Um, I uh, saw a an elected representative was speaking to a black. Uh, uh, member of the Trump administration, I think. Uh, I'm trying to think about the details. I don't remember. But it's like her voice went up an octave when she spoke to him, which, which to me signifies condescension in, um, in a way that's really not appropriate to that kind of a figure compared to when the white officials are on and it's like, you listen to me. And there's, there's something about that that communicates respect in a way um but i think there's something about the way that the, the 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 tension the body language the tone of voice the word choice it shifts and a lot of times that's going to be a better indication of the affect than the content of what's being said um and that's a you know but yeah is it is it fear is it you know i think that's you know the good not a bad hypothesis. Is now a good time to go over this email that I received from a listener? Sure. I don't, do I know what it is? Nope. <laughs> okay. All right. Sure. No, but I, I wanted your, your thoughts on this. Um, okay. I, I actually have several <laughs> like emails and messages and things people have sent me that I was hoping to get to in a Q and A and 
when I did try recording a Q&A by myself, I just had such a hard time talking without there being someone on the other end of the screen. But this one really oh. is something that I would like to explore with you. Um, so this is an email I received from a listener named Josh. Hi, Josh. Um, so he says, hi, Stephanie, great podcast, and congrats on speaking openly about important issues. I'm a clinical psychology doctoral candidate headed to internship, and I had a career question for you. What advice would you give a future mental health provider who still has to traverse licensure and a year of internship about speaking their mind on blogs slash social media? I listened to the podcast where Helen Joyce interviewed you and heard how hard it was for you when you received that ridiculous complaint. For more context, my internship site is in a city that just passed a bill to outlaw conversion therapy, awesome, where they conflated sexual orientation and gender identity, problematic. How would you handle this specific situation given your experience? What advice more generally would you have for early career therapists? Anyway, hope you're doing well. Keep up the great work, Josh. So you can see why I wanted your input on this, because I, I think yeah, Josh would benefit yeah, from yeah. hearing multiple perspectives. And, and you're a supervisor, so you you work with yeah. people just like him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I know a lot of people who are supervisors who are in the closet, and the students are in the closet, and they see each other and don't know. <laughs> Um, it does happen. I, um, uh, my, should I go first or do you want to go? Please. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually really want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, I think that this is a very personal type of decision. I told the story where I'm at the training site. They talk about hating a white male patient just because of his race and gender. I spoke up the rest of my time on that site. Pretty awful. But I thought it was worth it. Speaking from my heart, candidly and directly, and saying something that I still believe is true and was the right thing to say and do, felt good to me. And I think it was the right thing to do. I'm proud that I spoke up. It was very hard. You know, it, it was a hard year after that happened. But I don't regret it at all. Um, I can't make that decision for Josh um, you have to weigh the costs and benefits of, you know, the risks and benefits of having this stuff out here and what might happen if it got found out. Um, I knew, you know, I think one of the things is if you're going to say something controversial, now you have to be perfect. You know, it's like the types of graces that you would get to make mistakes as a trainee are taken away from you when you have a controversial opinion. You know, I, I teach a class, I teach about splitting. I teach other things that are controversial. I've decided I get, I get three things. I get, I get three things that I get to do over an entire semester that are, that are controversial. I can't do four. I start self-censoring after three. So I just kind of decided, you know, I've got to pull my punches a little bit. I, I can't have every class be like this. That's just not going to work. Um, but I can, do a, I can do a few. And, and I know that there's a chance that I get students who file a complaint, I get fired. And, and I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. I have other sources of income. I'm not as vulnerable as an internship candidate um, right now. Um, but I think it's worth reflecting on what we all value and what's worth it to us and what isn't. There are definitely times that I self-censor and I think this isn't worth it. It's not gonna be productive. You know, the risks are too high. There are other times where I really think carefully if I want to speak up exactly how do I want to do it that's going to leave me feeling good about it. Um, and then there are other times where I'm, you know, um, 
you know, where I'll, where I'll say something or not, but I, I just think you have to be thoughtful about it. I'm really glad that uh, the timing of this email coincided with the timing of my interview with you because I really think you're the perfect person to go over this with. And I, I thank you for that nuanced answer. I agree that this is a personal decision and you have to weigh the costs and benefits in your own life and assess the landscape that you're in, assess the timing and who's around you. I would say um, look for a good supervisor like Andrew, <laughs> if you can look for one of us, <laughs> you know, at least a supervisor you can be open with. Um, and, you know, think about choosing your battles. Let me but jump in. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Sorry to jump in. Mm -hmm. Have a therapist who gets it. I mean, if you're a, mm -hmm. if you're a student, you're probably most graduate students in the field are in therapy, as I, I think they should be, or in, in psychoanalysis or whatever it might be. Make sure that you're you have somebody who gets it, who's a mentor, a therapist, something. Sorry. Yeah, and join a group like you know Andrew and I met through. Um, critical therapy antidote, thoughtful therapist, one of these groups, you can join my Discord server for therapists, which is just getting started. Um, and, and think about choosing your battles and planning strategically for what's most important to you. Um, you know, for me, I, I decided that it was more important for me to live in integrity and, you know, think about how do I want to look back on this time in my life when things have changed 10 years from now. I want to look back knowing that I was one of the people who was an early whistleblower, not who cowered in fear. I was part of that change. But I also did that from a place of strength where I was you know, already licensed and in private practice and um, had a certain degree of security and some backup options. Like I'm you know, writing, I'm podcasting. So there was this like, well, if I have to, you know, plus I was in the process of, you know, when I first started taking these risks, I knew I was going to be selling a house that I owned. Um, and I've recently sold that house. So like if I lost my license right now, I'd have like a year's worth of money to live off of while I figured out my next move. And so for me, I was in a position to do that. Um, and you have to assess what position you're in um, and what's most important to you. Uh, I will make the point. I, I would also say, um, Josh, if you're not familiar with James Esses to, um, listen to him and chat with him, I'll be having him on the podcast. You know, he was somebody who was not so lucky and he was in grad school and spoke out about gender and got kicked out of grad school. And so that, that would be a valuable perspective to get as well. And then I would say another way to think about it is, um, in terms of what populations you want to work with and uh, identifying some protections that you have in working with people with disabilities. So um, uh, there's uh, one of my Twitter followers. I can't remember the name of the account right now, um, but he's somebody who specializes in disability rights. I think I'm going to have him on the show. It's a little cloudy right now. Sorry. <laughs> I have like a long list of people I'm going to have in the near future. Um, but he has given me some information about how the law actually protects people who are in a position of advocating for people with disabilities. So, you know, it's one thing if you're pushing back on ideology in school and, you know, standing out like a sore thumb. Um, and you you are going to stand out no matter what if you say anything about this. But, you know, 
maybe you could think about it more from the approach of instead of pushing back on what I see as being unhealthy or contradictory about this ideology with mental health, think about going into maybe specializing in working with detransitioners if that's an interest of yours, because we're going to see a lot more detransitioners over the coming decades and they're going to be traumatized and they're going to be afraid to trust us as therapists. So what do you anticipate it would look like in the landscape of your grad program and internship and the community that you live in if you were to start talking to people about, I'm really interested in working with detransitioners and that that that's a clinical population who needs help, right? And so framing it in terms of um, who you're working with. Another another thing that you could think about is, um, you know, today Andrew and I have talked about um, victims of racially motivated abuse who are white. I, I'm one of those people. And, uh, you know, do you want to frame it as like working with abuse victims or victims of racially motive, motivated ab- abuse and not necessarily even specifying upfront to everyone that you work with that that includes white people who've been targeted, right? Um, I think the main issue though is that when it comes to gender, it's very increasingly hard to not choose a side as a therapist um, because gender is touching the lives of so many people. There's no way of setting up a practice where you avoid it because you could have the most ordinary patient in the world and their kid could tell them they're trans tomorrow. And you're going to have to have some, you know, you're you're not going to want to feel like a deer in the headlights when one of your patients comes to you with something related to gender. And I think it's, um, it's very hard to be neutral on this issue. And if you decide that you want to work with victims of gender medicine, which is something that I care about and speak about, um, then you know you can't simultaneously learn what I've learned about victims of gender medicine and be neutral or positive on the issue of affirmation. I think that, you know, talk about splitting, like our field is split and a a split has been forced where you kind of have to choose a side, in my opinion. I don't know what you think of that, about that, Andrew, but I I just feel like you can't not pick a side and that 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 will be the issue you run into if you decide that you have a clinical interest in supporting detransitioners is that if you have a clinical interest in supporting detransitioners and your classmate has a clinical interest in supporting trans people and they're all in favor of the affirmation model and you're saying, I've heard horror stories from people who deeply regret that they were treated with the affirmation model, well, then there's there's going to be a conflict and hopefully your teachers and supervisors are adequately prepared to handle that conflict appropriately. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not my, I don't have the special specialty in this area that you do. Um, so I, but I mean, I think one thing I can say for certain, this is extremely risky. I, uh, I, I will say this, this is not quite related just to Josh, but what I will share with you, which I'm sure you've heard things like this before. Um, when I started my PhD program, I, um, I couldn't find a supervisor who had knowledge about trans issues in Brooklyn, in Manhattan. Um, I, uh, 
it was hard. And uh, when I took uh, psychopathology, you know, my DSM class, basically, there was not a unit on it um, that I recall. I'm, I'm, um, very little, if anything. I, th I think it wasn't there at all. Um, and uh, then within about a year, you couldn't ask questions. It, it was so stunning to see in one year, no questions. And I thought, this is so fishy that all of a sudden we have a consensus on everything and there was no discussion. Something I've never seen in the field of psychology where we fight about everything. You know, nature versus nurture, social versus personality, CBT versus psychodynamic. Think about all of these vicious decades-long research-driven debates. And to see in less than a year, um, you're not, it's considered um, you're a sign that you're a bad person if you ask questions. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I think what that privately when I raise things with people who I feel safe with, not people, not necessarily people who are in critical therapy antidote or heterodox academy, even just regular people, they have concerns. A lot of people have concerns who aren't speaking out, um, but that doesn't mean that they're involved or necessarily. But um, anyway, um, but yeah, I think I think that's probably right now. That's probably one of the one of the most uh, radioactive things you can go after. I think the race stuff is pretty, I think talking about anti-white hate is pretty, pretty radioactive too. But, um, but yeah, you can't, and you can't be a radical on every issue in your program as a graduate student. I think you could do, yeah, I don't think that's gonna work. Well, Josh, uh, hope, I think uh, maybe that was uh, a confusing <laughs> answer because reality is confusing Sorry. and and this is a no I mean it's, it's like we 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 said all the right things I think both of us like we acknowledge the reality of the situation right we didn't split it we didn't oversimplify it we shared <laughs> yeah. our ambivalence about the situation the predicament that Josh is in and i do hear from a lot of people like you Josh a lot of grad students and interns who are trying to figure this stuff out um in every field in every field it's 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 in medicine it's in education it's 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 really across the board and we're in a unique place as mental health pr practitioners to really be able to provide counseling and support to people in our field, but in every field around this issue, there are a lot of people going through this. Yeah. Um, if, if anyone listening is a multimillionaire and you're looking for some good works to fund, you know, feel free to suggest that people like Andrew and myself and all of these, you know, wonderful, frightened young therapists could, uh, you know, we could start our own programs. I was even, I had a little fantasy this morning as I was going for a walk. Um, uh, and I say fantasy for a reason because it's very unrealistic, but it was like a forming our own body that's not exactly a, a regulatory board or or anything like that, but like a, a body where um, 
people who've been mistreated by therapists who, you know, who came down on them for the white privilege or anything like that, where they could submit a complaint to us and we could send a letter to the therapist, like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. our our group of professionals, uh, you know, with this hundred signatures on it, like has been notified that a patient feels that you have been harmful to them by enforcing their ideology. And, you know, consider this a, a warning and here are some resources to educate yourself about evaluating your bias. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantasy, you know, but that's that's not unrealistic. That there there are places where we could get grants for it. It's it it is it it we are in a we're in a really exciting but very difficult place of like going from zero to one, where there aren't organizations that fund grants in this area yet, yet, but there can be, and. I, I, I think so. It's like we, we don't have like a, you know, institute where we can go to get funding. But, you know, when I was in graduate school, you, Heterodox Academy didn't exist. You know, it, it's, it, it, it developed after I was in for a couple of years. And at first, graduate students couldn't join. And now there's that, you know, and graduate students are in it. They can get mentors and things like that now. And so we can build things. And it's a very exciting time. By the way, how do how do I join Heterodox Academy? I'd love to be a part of that. I think you just go to the website and I think it's free and you just enter your email and um, they have grants. They it's they're only higher education. So I have pitched mental health related projects to them and they say only if it's higher it has to be higher education for them but, to fund anything. What do you mean so higher education? Be, Isn't that what we do? Like grad school? Well, it could it could be, it could be, they've, they want to fund research in particular. Um, you should look at what their grants are, but they wouldn't like fund a clinic or psychotherapy services or anything like that. Um, it has to be, yeah, I have ideas for research system. projects. I mean, I have Do, ideas for yeah. research projects a lot. I, I, I wouldn't want to actually be the one to carry them out because I don't think I have the patience for that. But I mean, things yeah. along the lines of like Lisa Littman's field of research, and she's done that all herself, right? But like, I think we need a lot more studies on um, the the mental health needs of victims of gender medicine. Um, yes. Oh, ab no doubt. And uh, they, oh, they do, Heterodox Academy really values, this is my personal opinion, that I think they really value being nonpartisan and they do not want to be seen as partisan and they work very hard to maintain that image um, and I think it's it's true there are a lot of liberals in heterodox Academy they're all concerned around free speech issues and open inquiry issues but um, they're not uh, so that sometimes determines what's going to get grant money or not we there are so many institutions we need to build to develop best practices and mental health services and research and expert witness testimony, you know, and, and to have the data to back it up and to um, have professional support networks and to, to be appealing to licensure boards or whatever and address improving standards. I mean, you can just think of dozens and dozens of things that we need to do. And um, yeah, hopefully it's, it's starting now. I mean, just even the podcast, Critical Therapy Antidote, Heterodox Academy, things are starting. More is going to come. We're just keep working at it. I haven't uh, mentioned this on the podcast yet, I don't think, but uh, are you familiar with the group Partners for Ethical Care? No. 
Okay, so uh, Jennifer from episode three of my podcast shared the story of how she helped her daughter desist. Um, her daughter started identifying as trans at the age of 10. Um, uh -huh. So Jennifer shared that story. And I mean, I think, you know, every day I think about it because I have stepkids who are eight and 10. And I just, I think about what people are doing to 10 year olds. And I'm just like, I have a 10 year old in my life and I can't picture it. Anyway, um, what's my point? Jennifer from Partners for Ethical Care, great person, great organization. And they are embarking on a campaign of putting uh, gender resources on postcards that they're mailing to therapists around the country. So they're actually like going through psychology today, looking for therapist mailing addresses and mm -hmm. sending out this postcard that says something like, what's happening in the world of gender? Don't you wonder? Here's some podcasts. And they they list uh, this podcast as well as their podcast, The Witness, um, Gender A Wider Lens, and Benjamin Boyce's YouTube channel. Um, so I'm excited because uh, this podcast, the timing of the release of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist was originally scheduled for mid-May in part because that's when they were going to do the postcard launch, but that's kind of gotten delayed. So they're kind of slowly in the process of sending those out. So I've gotten a lot of listenership and those postcards haven't even gone out yet. So I'm really excited because I actually Great. have no idea what portion of my listeners are therapists, um, but there's about to be a whole new wave of word of this podcast getting out specifically to therapists. And I'm hoping that we'll reach all of those moderate people who are somewhere in the middle of trying to figure out how to think about all this as clinicians. They've seen the rise of gender-related situations. They're looking for resources. And this is going to point them uh, in the direction of my podcast. So um, for Great. anyone who's listening that is a therapist, especially if you're one of the people who actually found out about it through the postcard, please let me know. I'd be so delighted to know that. Um, you know, now that we are talking, you know, people like Andrew and I and other listeners in the um, therapy world, um, there are a lot of ideas, as you were just saying, Andrew, to be explored about what kind of institutions we can set up, what needs funding, what needs attention, and this, you know, whole new generation of victims of gender medicine, which, you know, that's my common refrain, but as well as, you know, white racism survivors and other groups. Um, so on that note, Andrew, tell us what you're up to and where people can find you. Um, I, people, I have a website, it's heartspsychology.com. Um, there's mostly information about my private practice there. Um, some of my articles, I'm not good at keeping my publications up to date on that website, unfortunately, but, um, I'm hoping to, um, I am hoping to start, I'm pursuing funding resources to start a clinic that focuses on people who, need support around these issues that we've been discussing today. So I'm hoping to start um, to maybe create a separate website that has more resources and to focus on those services soon. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, right now, it's just the, just the website with my, with my list, of, with my articles. Yeah. And there's some great articles. I recommend people check those out. Um, you. Are you on any social media where people can follow you? No. Unlike most of my guests, we're all so busy on Twitter. You're over there just know, living your you life know, without Twitter. I, it's, it is what it is. Maybe, maybe soon. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Andrew Hartz, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. 
This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.